pulmonary fibrosis, what primary care providers need to know is a CME podcast episode produced by PrimeMed in partnership with Learn More, Breathe Better, a program of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute of the National Institutes of Health. My name is Vani Patlaria. I'm an assistant professor of internal medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. As a primary care provider myself, I'm very excited to introduce our two guest speakers today. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Matt Craig, Chief of the Lung Biology and Disease Branch with NHLBI's Division of Lung Diseases, and Dr. Fernando J. Martinez, Chief of the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Division of Weill Cornell Medicine. Today, we will be discussing pulmonary fibrosis and the role of primary care providers, including signs to look out for, diagnosis, and treatment options. Let's jump right in with our first question. Pulmonary fibrosis is a chronic and progressive lung disease that is often fatal. It is most common in older adults and may become increasingly common with an aging U.S. population. Dr. Craig, can you describe the role of primary care providers in recognizing and enabling diagnosis of pulmonary fibrosis? Sure. And first off, thanks for having me, Dr. Putleri. I'm very happy to be here to talk about this important topic. Um, so beyond the patient who's obviously in the best position to first detect a change in their health status and report it to their doctor, primary care providers really serve as the front line for detecting possible cases of pulmonary fibrosis. And referring patients for further medical assessment by pulmonary disease experts, including pulmonologists and radiologists, who can help to provide a timely and definitive diagnosis. And we know that it's critically important to detect cases early in the disease course so that we can intervene before patients progress to the more severe stages of pulmonary fibrosis and hopefully provide patients with a higher quality of life for longer. So how can primary care providers help to detect possible cases, facilitate a confirmatory diagnosis, and improve care for their patients? In some cases, patients will present with notable symptoms that will serve as the first indication that something is amiss in the lungs. So recognizing what those symptoms are can speed the process of referral, which in turn can expedite diagnosis and treatment. In addition, primary care providers will often find possible cases somewhat incidentally by discovering abnormalities associated with pulmonary fibrosis through routine screening or imaging performed initially to detect other conditions such as lung cancer. Beyond treatment for pulmonary fibrosis itself, primary care providers also play a pivotal role in managing certain comorbid conditions that otherwise could serve to exacerbate the symptoms of or promote the progression of pulmonary fibrosis. Once a diagnosis has been made, primary care providers can also help to track disease progression and assess how well their patients are responding to therapy through recurrent testing and assessment of respiratory symptoms. And lastly, primary care providers are integral to helping patients manage any therapies they are on to ensure proper adherence to their treatment regimens um, and to look out for any untoward side effects. Thank you so much, Dr. Craig, for the wonderful explanation. Dr. Craig, can you walk us through the symptoms and the risk factors for developing pulmonary fibrosis? Yeah, so the, the most common form of pulmonary fibrosis is what's known as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF, uh, which, as the precursor idiopathic suggests, means we really don't know what the underlying cause is. And in fact, there are probably multiple causes of IPF. What we do know is that the most common that it is most common in individuals over 50 years of age, and it tends to be more prevalent in men than women. Um, beyond age and biological sex, one of the only other known risk factors for IPF in particular is a history of smoking. Uh, there also appears, at least in some cases, to be a genetic component to IPF, as you tend to be at higher risk for developing pulmonary fibrosis if you have any first-degree relatives who also have it. 
And when there are at least two cases in close family members like that, we refer to it as familial IPF. As opposed to sporadic IPF, uh, when there was only a single individual in a given family uh, who was known to have the disease. In terms of symptoms, one of the first things patients notice is shortness of breath or dyspnea, uh, which initially may only be noticeable uh, upon exertion, such as during exercise, but eventually may be noticeable even when at rest. Uh, another common symptom is a recurrent dry cough that gets worse over time, uh, leading to uncontrolled bouts of coughing. And then there are other secondary symptoms that may vary from person to person, but include things like general malaise or feeling unwell, aching muscles and joints, chronic or severe fatigue, gradual and unattended weight loss, and a clubbing of the fingers or toes. Thank you, Dr. Craig, for all of that information. Now, let's say we identify a patient who has risk factors for pulmonary fibrosis. Let's switch over to Dr. Martinez. Dr. Martinez, what are the typical steps involved in the diagnosis of pulmonary fibrosis? Well, thank you, Dr. Butlery, uh, for inviting me and Matt. Great job. Um, this is uh, a really interesting and very complex topic. Uh, I wanted to highlight a couple of things that Matt mentioned because it's particularly relevant for our primary care colleagues. There have been several studies that have been published over the course of the last maybe five or six years, even before the pandemic. Uh, and they highlighted a couple of really tip-offs for the primary care clinician that pulmonary fibrosis uh, is likely. Um, and the, the components are, as Matt said, age and cough. And so uh, the, these studies have suggested that patients presenting who are over 50 with a cough are particularly more likely, particularly if they're men, to have a diagnosis of, uh, of IPF. So that an older person with a chronic cough should be a tip-off, that something is up. The same thing for breathlessness, and we encourage all our primary care clinicians not to ignore even an incidental comment by a radiologist of mild scarring on a chest x-ray. That should be boop, 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 tip off in your mind that something is potentially amiss. When we are uh, referred individuals for the potential of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, since it's such a severe illness, as Matt has said, it triggers in our minds a process of evaluation that has been codified, it's been standardized based on work that a group of us have done with international collaborators to define sort of the, the approach that we take to be able to ensure that we've made an accurate diagnosis. Uh, as Matt said, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis has the word I in it, the letter I, idiopathic, which generally means that we need to exclude a whole series of, uh, of disorders that are associated with pulmonary, pulmonary fibrosis. And so we spend a lot of our time with our history, with the physical exams, of initial laboratory tests, to ensure that we're not dealing with uh, a, a hypersensitivity pneumonitis, an allergic reaction to something in, the, in that the patient has been exposed to, that they don't have an underlying connective tissue illness, which is frequently associated with pulmonary fibrosis. The management for those two disorders is very different, as is their prognosis. So we spend a fair amount of time uh, with history, exposure, uh, the family history, as Matt said, and then a series of initial laboratory studies to be able to get a sense of, is there something that's excluding the letter I in this particular individual patient? The, the next component that is frequently done is a measurement of lung function. The, the lung function tests are not as helpful in terms of the diagnostic process, but they're most helpful in terms of establishing some measure of severity uh, and to serve uh, as, a, as a measure of how well the patient's lung function is doing over time as you embark with the patient on a therapeutic journey. Uh, the, the imaging, the, the chest imaging is particularly crucial. That has also been standardized over time in a high-resolution CT of the chest. 
not a CTA, not an angiogram of the chest, not a regular CT, but a CT with a very specific non-contrast methodology that has uh, a limited amount of radiation, and it allows us to look very granularly uh, at the lung structure. And there are patterns of abnormality on CT that are absolutely typical for what we see in a patient with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and they can be diagnostic. So if you see a patient who doesn't have an alternate uh, diagnosis, who has a very typical pattern on CT, there you go. Diagnosis uh, is, uh, is made in that setting. It is uh, now rarer that we have to resort to a lung biopsy to make the diagnosis, but that also is occasionally necessary. Given the complexity of this whole uh, diagnostic process, the standard of care now uh, is one that we defined at the University of Michigan 15 years ago. Uh, is to establish final diagnosis using something that's called an MDD, a multidisciplinary discussion, where all clinicians involved in the care of a patient provide input regarding the history, physical, comorbid conditions, the imaging pattern, any biopsy that's present, and we reach a final diagnosis. It is increasingly more likely that primary clinicians participate in MDDs for their individual patients because they provide very granular information on that particular patient. Thank you for all of that information, Dr. Martinez. A follow-up question is, once we've identified a suspected case of pulmonary fibrosis, when should we get our pulmonary specialists on board, and what is necessary for a referral? Yeah, I mean, I think the key thing, as Matt said, is that the, the, the primary care clinician, who's really the point person in the management of all of the disorders in, in an individual patient, as it should be, uh, usually is the person that first says, something's up here, there's something amiss, and sort of starts that journey. Uh, and so it is helpful for us in specialty centers uh, to have patients that have already undergone an initial evaluation. The clinician has already performed some of the history, given us some sense regarding the totality of the conditions that the patient is dealing with. Uh, and if they can even assure that we have the, the correct standard high-resolution CT, that is a perfect initial setting for a primary care clinician. Because of the complexity of the diagnostic process, the various diagnostic entities, the differing diagnostic modalities, generally, if the primary care clinician thinks that there is the potential of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. I, as a pulmonary physician with area of specialty in this arena, always value earlier referral later than a, the, the, the later referral because it just makes the entire process of diagnosis and therapeutic decision-making much, much more straightforward. So Dr. Martinez, what are the treatment options that are available for a patient with pulmonary fibrosis? Uh, that is a key question because that actually has, has been what has revolutionized our field. Uh, I've, I've been doing this for 30 years, and it used to be that you, there's nothing you could do, Dr. Butler, and you said, oh, I'm so sorry, you got a horrible diagnosis, that's terrible. Uh, and it was a relatively short discussion. The discussions now with our patients with pulmonary fibrosis are longer. It's an hour at a, uh, at a time because there actually are effective therapies. Uh, and so we have two uh, agents that have been approved for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, perfenidone and nintedinib, both of those agents clearly have an effect that improves lung function over time. It doesn't cure the disease, but it ameliorates the rate of deterioration, which is a massive advantage. It likely, both of those likely improve mortality as well. And so we have two very active drugs. They're not easy drugs to take. They have a lot of tolerability issues, so it requires close collaboration between the patient, their family member, the primary care clinician, and the 
specialist to ensure that the, the, the patient uh, shares in the decision-making as to if they're going to take a drug, which of those two drugs, at what dose, and for how long. And those discussions now are, are, are much more prolonged discussions, which actually is a good thing because it actually means that we have things that we can actually do that improve the overall situation. Moreover, at centers such as mine and most of the specialty centers, there are multiple active studies that are ongoing for patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, whether it's MET and the NHLPI that supports it, or whether it's uh, industry. There are scores, I'm talking dozens and dozens of clinical trials that are ongoing. And so it is my expectation that the therapeutic landscape in this field will dramatically expand in a good way in just the next several years. It is totally different now than the management of this disease 5, 10, even certainly 15 years ago. Not only that, we now have a much better sense of additional therapeutic options. Pulmonary rehab clearly improves quality of life. Uh, supplemental oxygen when needed the important approach to vaccination. The pandemic was a perfect example of how we all believe in vaccination. So it, it's very clear that the management now is so much more comprehensive for these patients, all of which benefits patients' quality of life and likely their survival, the ultimate goal in how we deal with these patients. So it is totally different now than it was in the past. It's a much more positive field than it was in the past. Thank you so much for all that information, Dr. Martinez. We're going to switch back to Dr. Craig. Dr. Craig, any final thoughts you have to share with the audience? Yeah, so I just want to end by highlighting some resources that the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute provides to our community of stakeholders with an interest in pulmonary fibrosis, including patients, researchers, and medical care providers. Uh, this includes a series of educational awareness and outreach materials made available through what is known as NHLBI's Learn More, Breathe Better program which offers a range of publications that primary care providers can access and pass on to their patients. In addition to a fact sheet entitled, What is Idiopathic Pulmonary Fibrosis? that walks through the common symptoms, diagnostic process, risk factors, and treatment options for IPF, these resources also cover other relevant lung disease topics, including COPD, asthma, and others. These health education resources are available at www.nhlbi.nih.gov slash breathe better. Thank you so much, Drs. Craig and Martinez. This was a lot of valuable information, a lot of which I'll be applying to my own clinical practice. Thank you so much for being here.